0: The desire for peace, prosperity, happiness. These are all natural wants. The desire for good, however, can be exploited and used by those who do evil. Communism advertises itself as a promise for a man made heaven on earth. What it delivered instead was a living hell. Harvard University Press's The Black Book of Communism, published in 1994, attributes over a hundred million deaths worldwide to the ideology, and more recent research places the number even higher. In every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels set forth in the Communist Manifesto an ideology of struggle that, in their own words, abolishes all religion and all morality. It viewed the world from the lens of what Marx coined dialectical materialism, which was the absolute idea that development occurs as a result of struggle and life is nothing more than matter. If human existence is reduced to only matter, then life becomes expendable for the so-called greater good under communist doctrine. Except that the communist definition of good runs counter to what normal people understand as universal good. For example, I think most sane people would agree that famine, suffering and genocide are bad.
1: But to communist
0: leaders, they've been reframed as successes or even as necessary for the so-called greater good. When Lenin assumed power in 1917, tens of thousands were arrested for opposing the regime, and many were tortured and executed en masse. Lenin's strategy was to eliminate, by legal or physical means, any challenge or resistance, even if passive, to their absolute power. By forbidding private property, peasants throughout Russia had their food, farming tools, and even seeds confiscated. Unable to farm, a man-made famine swept through Russia in 1921 and 1922, killing an estimated 5 to 10 million people. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. According to the Black Book of Communism, Lenin was overjoyed, saying that famine would have numerous positive results. Since, he said, famine would destroy faith not only in the Tsar, but in God, too. Following Lenin's death in 1924, Stalin's 29-year reign further bloodied Russia. More famines and purges would occur. In Ukraine, 7 to 10 million people were killed, according to the United Nations estimate published in November 2003. In Kazakhstan, an estimated 1.5 million people were starved. Like Lenin, Stalin also counted the famines as a success. He killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. The deaths under Mao Zedong of the Chinese Communist Party may have been even higher. Starting in 1958, the Great Leap Forward created yet another man-made famine that killed an estimated 45 million people within four years. Under both Stalin and Mao, historians have records of people who, desperate for survival, resorted to cannibalism. When conditions are that barbaric, people are forced to either die or to betray their own morals just to survive. And after violating their own morals, guilt, self-loathing, and all that makes a person psychologically vulnerable begin to dominate. To protect the psyche, people will sometimes tell themselves they made the right decision, that morality is relative, that everything is just matter and that the communist worldview is correct. What the constant barrage of public executions, suffering, trauma and madness does is leave people so afraid, shocked or apathetic and numb that nobody can think straight anymore. A key goal of communism is to erase pre-existing morals. That way communism can displace traditional morals with its own code of ethics or rather its absence of ethics. Their code demands only obedience to the party above basic humanity. The party dictates what is right and wrong, and anything that challenges it is deemed wrong. So under communism, morality, faith, and tradition are all targets for destruction. But under it, famine is right, struggle is right, and violence is right when they serve the party Mao's cultural revolution in the 1960s saw children beating their own parents. Teachers, landlords and intellectuals were hunted and publicly humiliated, or worse, by Mao's militant group, the Red Guard. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. Deaths elsewhere haven't been fully counted, but are placed at 1 million in Vietnam, 2 million in Cambodia, 1.7 million in Africa, 1.5 million in Afghanistan, 1 million in Eastern Europe, 150,000 in Latin America, and even more in other places where communism touched. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Is this a tragic case of the road to hell being paved by good intentions, or were the intentions bad from the get-go? Before he was the founder of Communism, Karl Marx wrote many publications in his early years. In his early poem, Invocation of One in Despair, he wrote, So a god has snatched from me my all. Nothing but revenge is left to me. This theme of revenge continues. In his 1839 play, Alanem, believed to be Emmanuel, an alternative name for God pronounced backwards and with each pair of letters inverted. The character in the play seeks to destroy not only himself, but the world along with him. In his 1841 poem, The Player, or The Fiddler, Marx writes, Look now, my blood-dark sword shall stab unerringly within thy soul. God neither knows nor honors art. The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain, till I go mad and my heart is utterly changed. And he also writes, See this sword? The Prince of Darkness sold it to me." And quote. With Satan, I have struck my deal. He chalks the signs, beats the time for me. I play the death march fast and free. Marx had a dark fixation with death, destruction, and revenge. It's only fitting that his manifesto would create a system that achieved exactly these. Communism capitalized on humankind's desire for a higher purpose and did so by destroying religion and placing itself at the helm instead. In an imagined communist state, the government controls everything, all matters public and private. People are all reduced to matter, cogs in a machine, and as employees or assets within a soulless collective. Communism is a belief built up on the destruction of belief, and a morality built on the destruction of morality. It is a dead-end ideology, built on struggle, hatred, and destruction. Communism is a belief in the destruction of belief. It destroys religion wherever it goes. So who is the unholy father of communism? Francois-Noël Gracchus baba The French Revolution would be remembered for its unjust bloodshed, killing over 300,000 people. It was a period known as the reign of terror. Communism is a belief in the destruction of belief. It destroys religion wherever it goes, and yet it functions like a religion, or rather an evil cult. Let's see, now in communism, there are leaders who act as prophets, there's scripture, there are followers, fanatics, precepts, and rules, requirements for faith in the party, and there's punishment for non-believers. The cult of communism lures people by preaching secular salvation in a man-made utopia, and this leads to dystopias. So who is the unholy father of communism? Marx? Well he popularized it and sharpened it but the origins go back further. Francois-Noël Gracchus-Babeuf. Babeuf believed in the elimination of money. He's also regarded as the first revolutionary communist. In his imagined system, people would hand over their work to a common storehouse owned by an all-powerful government, which would then redistribute it back to the people. Babeuf launched the Conspiracy of Equals after the failures of the French Revolution. It was a blueprint for violent revolution against the French government. The plot failed. Babuff was arrested and beheaded in 1797. But one of his conspirators who survived was Felipe Bonarotti. Felipe created the League of Outlaws, which was built on Babuff's ideas. Then came Wilhelm Weitling, a German tailor, who took Babuff's ideas added in some of his own Christian apocalypse vision into the mix and renamed the League of Outlaws to the League of the Just. In the 1700s and 1800s, secret societies were on the rise with many of them popping up across Europe. The League of the Just would eventually merge under the Blanquist Rebellion. However, the Blanquist Rebellion failed in 1839 so the League of the Just again renamed itself, this time as the Educational Society for German Workingmen in 1840. At a Congress in June 1847, the League of the Just joined under the Communist Correspondence Committee, which was formed a year earlier by Marx and Engels. The Manifesto would be published one year after, and regarded as scripture by future communist leaders who all had insatiable bloodlust. These movements culminated in the Paris Commune of 1871, regarded as the first communist government. In just over two months, they would kill tens of thousands and destroy roughly a quarter of Paris' arts and cultural relics. But their work would still be far from over. France and America were both suffering under tyrannies in the late 1700s. The American Revolution, fought against imperial rule to create a system that limited the power of government for the three branch system. The Americans fought for the idea that government is instituted among men only to protect the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They expanded liberties in one nation under God. The French Revolution, however, replaced absolute imperial rule with absolute rule in a socialized system. It stripped personal liberties with one nation under a state cult. The French Revolution would be remembered for its unjust bloodshed, killing over 300,000 people. It was a period known as the Reign of Terror. When babuff was alive, he was a member of the Jacobins Club a revolutionary society in France at the time. And this club also was the infamous Maximilien Robespierre, lover of the guillotine and public executions. Before the Jacobins took power, they were divided between the moderate Giraudan and the radical Montagnard. Robespierre led the radicals, and once he attained power in 1793, the first people he beheaded were the Girondins. One of the radical Jacobins, Louis-Antoine de Saint-Just, justified this as, you can hope for no prosperity as long as the last enemy of liberty breathes. You have to punish not only the traitors, but even those who are neutral. So unless you are a devout follower of the socialized system, you'll be branded a heretic and hunted down and killed in cult fashion. This happened under the official atheist state cult, the Cult of Reason which purged religious believers under the de-christianization movement. The Jacobins also legally purged people under the law of suspects, which made guilty anyone acting suspiciously, associating with the wrong people, or saying or writing anything considered out of line. With that law alone, they beheaded over 16,000 people. But they weren't finished. The leaders of the French Revolution used utopia to justify violence and labeled swaths of society as enemies of the revolution, and each new law identified a new set of enemies. The famous essayist G.K. Chesterton once said that the new socialist systems are not rebelling against an abnormal tyranny. They are rebelling against what they think is a normal tyranny, the tyranny of the normal. They are not in revolt against the king, he wrote. They're in revolt against the citizen. What motivated these movements was a new belief, deeply rooted in naturism and Gnosticism, which was reason over faith and man over God. Their belief in unrestrained human nature, rather than moral aspirations, mirrored the materialist ideologies that communism would later adopt. It was the idea that if nature takes precedence, anything that springs from human nature is then correct including any crime and any sin. When people sign up for communism they think they're signing up to create a system for the people. Instead, the system destroys the people. Time and time again, whenever it's fallen, communism simply gets back up, puts on another mask, renames itself, and tries to con people again, using the idea of the greater good. The Illuminati has been the focus of many conspiracy theories. The history of communism wouldn't be complete without mentioning their influences. But the main one remembered by history was the Illuminati of Bavaria. It was formed by Adam Weishaupt in 1776, the same year as America's founding. The communist leader Leon Trotsky attributed the roots of communism to these Illuminati societies. The express aim of this order was to abolish Christianity and overturn all civil government. On a deeper level, these ideas stem from the stated purpose of overthrowing traditional culture, faith and morality. This concept is at the core of many ills the world has now witnessed under communism. When faith is destroyed, government becomes the highest power. In the Age of Enlightenment, people believed they could discard the old world and that with human reason replacing tradition and faith, modern men could fashion something better. Of enlightenment, people believed they could discard the old world, and with human reason replacing tradition and faith, modern men believed they could fashion something better. The narrative of reason was used to launch the reign of terror, where at least 40,000 people were beheaded by guillotine. This obsession with bloodshed and destruction led to a century of attempted revolutions throughout Europe. Socialists launched uprisings in France in 1789, 1830, and 1848 before Napoleon III launched his own movement with a coup d'etat in December 1851 to end the chaos. After Napoleon assumed power, he placed a hard ban on movements such as the Cult of Reason, which had a key role in the violence and chaos of the French Revolution. And he also placed restrictions on organizations that the socialists were using To spread their movements, including unions and news outlets. However, in 1863, when Napoleon eased restrictions, French unions immediately sent envoys to join the first meeting of the Communist International in 1863. It was promoted by Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto. This was followed by Marx's second international in 1867, along with his publication of Das Kapital, and the staging of a new revolt in Paris by Marx's followers. The communist movement existed prior to Marx, but Marx gave it a new lease on life. Before Marx, communism and its system of socialism were in their death throes, as they weren't seen as practical systems. Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises wrote in socialism that the ideologies weren't able to win academic debates in economics and sociology, and they weren't seen as functioning systems because of this. Marx countered this failing narrative battle by stating that economists and sociologists were of the bourgeois class and therefore didn't need to be debated. This gave socialists and communists the ability to ignore the debate altogether and instead result in name calling using class labels. What Marx also did was create a new vision of a communist future, of a society created in the image of man rather than God. Marx used a theory called the negation of the negation. The concept's from Hegelianism, one of the main metaphysical theories in Europe at the time, and it held that to realize a more evolved condition, the existing condition must first be destroyed. Using the promise of an undefined utopia, he justified destruction of all existing institutions, including morality, family, religion, economics, government, and others. The author and reformed revolutionary, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Characterized the motivations for these movements in his book Demons, stating that from the standpoint of communists, at the present time, all your efforts should be directed towards bringing the whole thing down, both the government and its morality. Only we will be left, we who have prepared ourselves to assume power. Under his movement, Marx united socialist and communist factions across Europe. They fomented destruction first in France and then the rest of the world. When Napoleon III again softened restrictions in France, socialist newspapers pushed the new slogan of moderation is death, according to the terrible year by Alistair Horne, which added, "passions seemed to be mounting towards an explosion comparable to that of 1848. An explode these passions did with the creation of the Paris Commune of 1871. Groups that we've discussed before, the Jacobins and the Blanquists, seized Paris and launched a new terror that would, in over two months, between March 18th and May 28th, in the same year, kill innocents, desecrate churches, and decimate a large portion of the art and architecture that Paris was known for. Previously, during the French Revolution's de-Christianization movement that lasted until 1794, Revolutionaries dressed farm animals in priest garb and placed prostitutes at the heads of churches. They desecrated cathedrals, destroyed crosses, and they killed priests. Then under the Paris Commune of 1871, priests were again persecuted and temples were again destroyed. The Commune leaders issued a notice of the Church of St. Pierre with a slogan for their crimes. Priests are thieves and churches are hunts where the masses have been morally assassinated. What began as a movement to replace supposedly oppressive traditions quickly spiraled down to commune leaders acting out in the very same terrors that they claimed to oppose. They confiscated private property, they censored rival newspapers, and they arrested anyone suspected of sedition, and they moved to destroy all symbols of the old world. When it became evident that the reign was coming to a close, they lashed out at Paris with brazen acts of terror. The first cultural monument to fall victim was the 840 foot for dome column. When government forces moved in to stop them on May 23rd, the commune leaders set fire to as much of Paris as they could touch. Dozens of historical buildings were set ablaze, and these spread along the landmarks and districts of Paris. The last vestiges of royalty have just disappeared. I wish that the same will happen to all the monuments of Paris. Bergeret, commune leader. The Palais de Justice, the prefecture des police and other famous buildings were left in ruins. The library of the Louvre Museum also suffered, and the Louvre itself would have been lost if not for government soldiers intervening. The socialists stole and beheaded 28 stone statues and the kings of Judah from Notre-Dame. While the cathedral is also set on fire, Notre-Dame survived the encounter thanks to people who helped extinguish the flames. The Palais Royal was also among the structures saved. And finally, the commune leaders torched their own headquarters on May 24th, setting ablaze the historic Hotel de Ville before their brutal reign was overthrown by incoming government forces. Although the Paris Commune of 1871 ended, the ideas hatched from France would later be deployed across the globe. This included in the United States with socialist and anarchist riots through the late 1800s that culminated in the 1920 bombing of Wall Street. Marx laid a curse on France with a pamphlet in 1871, stating that the Civil war in France could have neither peace nor truce with these new factions and the old ones, and that the battle must break out again and again in ever-growing dimensions. And again and again it did break out. The Paris Commune of 1871 was the first time communists took power, but their appetite for destruction and bloodlust would continue under all its subsequent systems. politics today, there's an idea of a far right versus a far left. However, this is often misrepresented. Both ends of the spectrum, with socialism usually on the far left, and fascism and Nazism usually on the far right, are actually all derived from different interpretations of communism. All of them share beliefs in state collectivism, planned economies, and class struggle. A good part of this came about after World War I when Marx's predictions by the coming revolutions proved incorrect. Contrary to Marx's predictions that the livelihood of workers had become worse under capitalism, their livelihoods actually improved. And when the communist revolution did happen, it was not in these so-called late-stage capitalist societies, which at the time were Britain and Germany, but instead, communists established power in Russia, which at the time was still in an agrarian state. Also, instead of the so-called proletariat against the bourgeoisie, The Bolshevik revolution was the military and intelligentsia against the feudal Russian czarist system. The series of events largely disproved Marx's predictions and sent communists at the time back to the drawing board. Then they came up with other variants, which included, among others, fascism and Nazism. After Vladimir Lenin took power in Russia, Benito Mussolini began his takeover of Italy. And as one of Europe's most prominent socialists, Mussolini's takeaway from World War I was that nationalism was more popular than calls for a workers' revolution. He thus revised Marxism into Fascism. Fasci referred to a bundle of sticks reinforcing the handle of an axe, and it was used to represent the idea of state collectivism. Like Lenin, Mussolini believed that the worker was not by nature a revolutionary and had to be prodded to radical action by an intellectual elite. According to Russia under the Bolshevik regime by Richard Pipes, no prominent European socialist before World War I resembled Lenin more closely than Benito Mussolini. Like Lenin, he headed the anti-revisionist wing of the country's socialist party. Like him, he believed that the worker was not by nature a revolutionary and had to be prodded to radical action by an intellectual elite. After Mussolini, Adolf Hitler then appeared in Germany with the idea of National Socialism. He used race politics under the narrative of Aryanism to unite Germans who had been divided by the 1918 armistice after World War I. And Hitler used identity politics to rally his followers. As author and filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza pointed out in his book The Big Lie, exposing the Nazi roots of the American left. The Nazi policies followed a 25-point program that closely mirrored the programs of today's socialists. These included universal free healthcare and education, nationalization of large corporations and trusts, government control of banking and credit, the splitting of large shareholdings into smaller units, and similar policies. In addition, D'Souza wrote that Mussolini and Hitler both identified socialism as the core of the fascist and Nazi way of life. Mussolini was the leading figure of Italian revolutionary socialism and never relinquished his allegiance to it. Hitler's party defined itself as championing national socialism. Just as Lenin targeted wealthy farmers and the Chinese Communist Party's Mao Zedong targeted landlords, Hitler also targeted a single group of people for his state system to struggle against, the Jews. The conflict that later took place between the various systems during World War II was not a battle of opposite ideologies, but instead a fight over which interpretation of socialism would prevail. To say that Nazism, fascism, and Leninism have nothing to do with socialism or communism is simply untrue. They lost their respective wars in the course of history and were disowned. According to The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek, The conflict between the fascist or national socialist and the older socialist parties must indeed very largely be regarded as the kind of conflict which is bound to arise between rival socialist factions. Today, Antifa ironically advocates for both communism and anarchy's complete destruction of government. While these ideas may seem incompatible, Historically, the anarchist and socialist movements often ran side by side. While socialists believed that a stage of government tyranny was needed to drive society into communism, the anarchists believed they could bypass the stage of socialist tyranny and create communism themselves. William Godwin, who lived from 1756 to 1836, was one of the founding anarcho-communists. He held that through personal anarchy A person could achieve what he called voluntary communism. Under this idea anarchists achieve communism's desolation by internally destroying the recognition of morals and hierarchy, thereby breaking the bonds of morality and order within themselves rather than through external institutions. Although the anarchists played strong roles in violent protests and revolutions throughout history to create socialist governments. The Antifa organization isn't about targeting real fascism, as it claims. Rather, it's a strategy for a power grab. 80 Years of Anti-Fascist Action by Bernard Langer is a booklet by a former member of the Autonome Antifa, formerly one of Germany's largest Antifa organizations, which was disbanded in 2004. According to Langer, the organization can be traced back to the United Front of the Soviet Union's Communist International during the Third World Congress in Moscow in June and July of 1921. At the Fourth World Congress of the Comintern in 1922, the organization sought to join together various Communist and Workers' Parties of Germany under a single ideological banner that it controlled. The Soviets believed after Russia that communism would next take Germany since Germany had the second largest Communist Party in Europe, the KPD. In Germany, Adolf Hitler became head of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazi Party, in 1921. And on August 23, 1923, the Politburo of the Communist Party of Russia held a secret meeting. And according to Langer, all the important officials spoke out for an armed insurrection in Germany. The KPD launched a movement under the banner of United Front Action and branded its armed anti-fascist wing under the name anti action or anti-fascist action where the Antifa organizations in other countries are rooted. Anti-fascist action began to attract some members who opposed the arrival of actual fascism in Germany but who were unaware of the connection. Communism was unpopular with many people in Germany at the time. The violent revolutionary rhetoric scared people, and the middle class would never go for communism. Seeing this, the socialists of Germany understood they needed a new strategy. So the KPD used anti-fascist action and labeled anyone who was opposed to them as fascists. Thus rival parties, especially the SPD, or Social Democratic Party of Germany, were placed under the fascist label and ironically the group the anti-fascists most heavily targeted were the social democrats. Anti-fascist action eventually became so violent in its operations that it had the opposite effect and pushed moderates to the other side. Appalled by the failure of the existing government to solve the crisis, the social democrats instead joined the Nazis. With anti-fascist action the communists pushed the people into a Nazi system that was still under the socialist ideas that were sweeping the world. And meanwhile, the people didn't know the KPD was actually a member of the Comintern. And within a few years, it became a Stalinist party, both ideologically and logistically. Being financially dependent on Moscow's headquarters, leaders of the KPD fell under the command of the soviet apparatus. Many KPD leaders would later become leaders in the communist German Democratic Republic, including in its infamous Ministry for State Security, the Stasi, after World War II. Antifa originated as a weapon wielded by politicians to move the people in their desired direction by fomenting chaos. Langer notes, the fascist label merely served as a battle concept under a political vocabulary, and that anti fascism is a strategy rather than an ideology. As author and economist Ludwig von Mises wrote in Planned Chaos, it is important to realize that fascism and Nazism were socialist dictatorships. He adds, the philosophy of the Nazis the German National Socialist Labor Party is the purest and most consistent manifestation of the anti-capitalistic and socialistic spirit of our age. He notes that the slogan the Nazis used to condense their economic philosophy was that the Commonwealth ranks above private profit, which was an idea under the American New Deal and the Soviet system to manage the economy, and also under the banner of fighting inequality. He wrote, it implies that profit-seeking business harms the vital interests of the immense majority and that it is the sacred duty of the popular government to prevent the emergence of profits by public control of production and distribution. While modern-day socialists want to divorce themselves from the failed institutions of Nazism and fascism, the truth is that they adopt many of the same interventionist policies, narratives on inequality, and underlying ideas. In order for socialism to assume power, it destabilizes existing social order with chaos and violence, intentionally propping up crisis and class enemies to blame, so that people fed up will settle for a new system, their system. For the communist system of dialectical materialism, everything in the universe amounts to nothing more than matter in motion. That means you and I are only clumps of physical cells. Our souls, emotions, mental health and well-being are not part of the communist equation. Since a communist worldview believes that fundamentally progress can only be attained through struggle and so instead of letting society exist naturally, they try to fast-track progress By engineering struggle, their formula for doing so is quite simple. Marxist theorist Georgi Valentinovich Plekhanov wrote in Dialectic and Logic in 1928 that the communist dialectic follows three laws to identify, to contradict, and to exclude the middle. First, they identify an issue in society, any cultural component. Then they contradict it by sharpening said issue into two antagonistic extremes. The chosen issue was then polarized and distributed to the media via state mouthpieces in a new campaign designed to create contention and cause struggle. And in this campaign, the goal is to exclude the middle. There's no tolerance for moderates. Vladimir Lenin under the Soviet Union categorized all people into only two groups, those who supported the communist revolution and those who did not. And those who did not were marked for destruction. Traditional dialectics aim to help people understand truths through the exchange of varying ideas or by looking at both sides of an issue. Karl Marx's idea of dialectical materialism, which is at the heart of modern communism, does the opposite. It looks at various issues in society and identifies their polar opposites. It then takes those opposites as the communist viewpoints and pushes these viewpoints as absolute and unquestionable truths. Communists intentionally discount the often vast variety of moderate viewpoints because they do not serve the communist narrative. Just like how the moderate Girondins were among the first to die in the French Revolution, or how moderate Democrats are shut out by the Democratic Socialists of America, communism favors the extremes. And the trait to exclude the middle runs counter to ancient wisdom shared across traditional belief systems. From Aristotle to Rumi or Shakyamuni to Solomon, traditional theories closely reflect what was stated by Lao Tzu, the best to keep is the middle way. Take something like the Taoist yin yang symbol. In traditional culture, it is two opposite elements working together in harmony to form a whole. However, this was inversed under the Chinese Communist Party. In the selected works of Mao Zedong, the yin-yang, which is normally a whole, is split into two, with each side constantly fighting and struggling against the other. Struggle is quintessential to communism, and what that does is creates a pervasive negative worldview. By constantly using the concept of the greater good against the people, Over time, it conditions them to subconsciously reject good. And the concept of goodness doesn't exist. It's only a label used for power struggles. Since, after all, that's how the communists view the greater good. People become accustomed to an environment where people are selfish, evil, untrustworthy, and inherently have bad intentions. Everything is a struggle. This is the communist worldview. Oleg Penkovsky, the highest-ranking Soviet official to provide intelligence to the UK, said that if the same set of information were handed to generals in America, Britain and the Soviet Union, that the American and the Englishman might possibly reach the same conclusion, but the Soviet general would arrive at conclusions which would be radically different from the other two. The logical process of his mind is totally unlike that of his Western counterparts because he uses Marxist dialectics, whereas they will use some form of deductive reasoning. The thought process that communist systems instill in people is inverted. On the surface, communism claims to empower people so they can be happy, but instead, it disempowers the people so they can be subjugated. One of the key changes that Marx and Engels made to the dialectical system of Hegel, a German philosopher, in order to form dialectical materialism, was to remove all spiritual elements. Communism aggressively seeks to destroy spirituality. The French Revolution trashed the cathedrals of France. The Cultural Revolution in China raised temples. Why do that? It's because spirituality itself poses a threat to communism. Even the very notion of a soul threatens communism, because the idea of a soul also carries an inner moral compass that's independent of government power. Inside your moral compass, if your true north points differently than where communism says north is, then that's a threat. Take, for example, a profession like a doctor that's meant to save lives. Now say the state orders its state doctors to kill, to harvest organs from prisoners of conscience in labor camps, and transplant them to extend the lives of high-net-worth individuals, sacrificing part of the population for what it calls the greater good. That is their warped north, wherever money can be made or wherever state interests are. A moral person, however, would see this as abhorrent, Communism wants everyone to face the same uniform north, its north, which could very well be south. Marx held that struggle leads to social evolution. He claimed that his ideas were the end stage. His communist system thus tried to incite struggle to hasten this process. A process that required fomenting economic, social, and moral collapse. Marx's theory of the Five Stages of Civilization mirrors those of Thomas Cole's course of empires. Cole believed the five stages to be the savage world, the pastoral, the consummate empire, destruction and desolation. Marx likewise envisioned five stages with communism being the end goal. Marx called the consummate empire capitalism, the state of destruction, socialism, and desolation, communism. Communism arises only after all morals, traditions, beliefs, institutions, hierarchy, and values have been destroyed. Marx and his co-writer, Frederick Engels, never intended socialism to be sustainable. Eventually, they believed either the socialist dictatorship would collapse, or its leaders would somehow renounce their powers, leading to the envisioned stage of communism. This is why followers of Communism argue that true Communism has never been achieved. So the Communist machine operates in a constant pursuit of an imagined future utopia by creating dystopia. In the last 100 years, it has claimed over 100 million to 150 million lives in its pursuit of progress. It has created societies where power is held by a small group that enslaves entire nations and where killings, gulags, re-education through labor camps, censorship and slavery become part of everyday life. Communism convinces people that it intends to bring people happiness but this happiness can be achieved only after a segment of society is either suppressed or eradicated. It is a conditional happiness at the expense of a person's morals and either the Eastern or Western spiritual view of the world. The course of human life serves to temper the character of the soul. An atheistic, materialistic reading of the world is that only matter or progress exists. Communism does not want you to have a soul. It wants you to follow orders. Collectively, as a society, we need to recognize and reject communism for its true nature. A machine that destroys the soul. If humanity as a whole embraces spirituality as a facet of life, then we can naturally progress and naturally find happiness. Not an artificial struggle-induced happiness that communism tries to sell us time and time again. We need to stop being duped by this old playbook. I hope we can all share with one another, warn one another about the dangers of communism so that we, the people, can finally be free and remain free ever after. Thank mm-hmm. you.